It's the VML Voice, the official podcast of the Virginia Municipal League. I'm your host, Rob Bullington. Welcome. If you care about broadband in Virginia, whether it be equity, access, deployment, or anything else, then I hope you were able to attend the Broadband Together Conference held just outside of Richmond at the Hilton Short Pump on May 17th and 18th of this year. Hosted by VML, the Virginia Association of Counties, and the Broadband Association of Virginia. Broadband Together is an annual event for Virginia's officials to gather, learn, and compare information on all things broadband. If you are one of the approximately 7.8 billion people on planet Earth who were unable to make the event, don't worry. The VML Voice was there, talking to some of the leading voices in broadband. Over the course of two episodes, we are pleased to bring you some of those voices. My thanks to my co-host, Josette Bulova, who conducted some of the interviews you will hear. In this episode, we talk to Jim Doyle, president of the Business Forward Foundation, Deborah Lathan, founder and president of Lathan Consulting, Mike Culp, director of the Broadband Accessibility and Affordability Office in Albemarle County, Kelly Page, FirstNet Area Sales Manager for FirstNet by AT&T, and Laurie Stone, Senior Public Safety Advisor for the First Responder Network Authority. Now, let's turn back the calendar to mid-May and dive into broadband together, well, together. Hi, I'm Jim Doyle with Business Forward, and uh, I'm talking about uh, the history of uh, closing the digital divide and how communities can avoid waste, fraud, and abuse. What's the one message you want to try to get across to people here today? Uh, The first is building your own broadband network Mm -hmm. is a very tough business, and it's always been tough, which is why most GONs have failed. And when a GON fails, it fails poorly, because you have to start taking money from other programs to, you know, offset the additional costs you didn't expect. But people also need to understand that, you know, the historic uh, record, which is bad, it could be the high watermark because we've got such inflation in the industry right now. You've got $77 billion of federal funding going after a finite number of consultants, construction firms, and fiber that the cost for these projects is going up. And um, uh, so communities need to be careful about that. And they also need to be careful about... um, just how much climate change and severe weather is affecting the cost of maintaining the network. Yeah, and you had some great examples of that mm-hmm. from other country. Well, the, I, I think what we try to do today, because we, we don't know these New Virginia towns as well as, we, as the people who are here in the room, is we used examples from other states. You know, small towns across Texas getting blown up mm-hmm. because the gun math that they were sold didn't turn out. Poor urban areas like Detroit. Um, spending money on fiber when they should be spending money on uh, adoption issues, digital literacy, affordable laptops, online support. Um, and then we also looked at some you know, cities and communities that are doing a great job. You know, Boston closed its adoption gap by surrounding people with help from a, a number of different local partners who approached them in person and helped them get online. And I love the two examples you gave of uh, the two communities in Texas that were quite close geographically, but pretty far apart economically, and how that played out very differently for their respective guns. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's important because Mount Bellevue and uh, Dayton are both, they're, they're next to each other. They're halfway between Beaumont and Houston. 
One's wealthy, one's growing dramatically because it sits on top of a salt dome filled with liquid petroleum gas. It's a boom town. Um, and it's gone. It's going to be a big success mm-hmm. for a bunch of other reasons. Dayton um, followed Mount Bel- Bellevue's lead, and it's blown up their budget. Their debt costs are bigger than they're, they're, they're spending on police, and um, they can't make the improvements to their infrastructure to protect the fiber that they put in. Yeah. Well, it was a fantastic presentation. Thank you for being at Broadband Together. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Deborah Lathan, and I am with my own consulting firm, consulting firm, Lathan Consulting. I consult on broadband and on digital um, equity issues. Now, I read your bio. There's a little bit more to you than that. Come on. Um, I was chief of the Cable Services Bureau at the FCC, which is now called the Media Bureau. And I was there at an extremely exciting time. That's actually before people even knew what broadband was. Uh, my group, we, were, we wrote the first report called Understanding Broadband back in 1998. Um, and so I have been engaged in telecommunications since 1998. And uh, I also served on the board of British Telecom as a non-executive director. But what has really been my passion has been um, um, the ubiquitous deployment of the Internet. Because I just, I, I know that this is something that is just absolutely necessary for all Americans. And as I say, I go back to 1998 when we weren't even video streaming or anything like that. And I'll tell you the reason why I decided to go to the FCC, because I had spent my entire career in corporate America, was because the then chairman of the FCC, Bill Kennard, uh, he convinced me. I said to him, I'd like to move to, to Washington and I'd like to do civil rights. And can you please help me, you know, maybe do something over at the Department of Justice? And he said to me, Deborah, the next civil rights movement will not be fought on the streets. It will be fought over those who have access to broadband and, and those who do not. He was absolutely prescient in 1998. He says, this, is, this will be the next civil rights battle, and we've got to make certain that all Americans have access to this technology. And so that's what brought me to D.C., and that's what's kept me here. Just because you build it doesn't mean they'll come. This is not the field of dreams. So if we have connectivity in five years, the question is, will we have adoption? What, if we don't move the needle on adoption, you know, it's kind of, we, that's the key. I mean, that's, that's, that's what will make uh, broadband accessible to everyone is if it's adopted. This is our time to shine right now. Congress is not going to give us $77 billion again. And if we don't make this happen now, then we have not just failed our generation, but we have failed many, many generations. And so the gravity of our undertaking really struck me a lot harder when I thought about about this is that this can't just this can't be another government program uh, that's uh, doomed to f- fraud, waste, and abuse. Okay, it's, this one's got to work. Yeah, is there anything else that um, that you would have liked to have been able to bring up today that you didn't get a chance to, or or do you feel like your your admission is to to hammer home those those essential points and make sure everybody hears them? I do feel that it's necessary to 
really repeat the adoption because so much emphasis is being placed on deployment. And that's great. You know, I do want the build-outs to all the neighborhoods. But I also know that, you know, if people don't subscribe, we will have failed. And it's not just failing in the sense of, oh, they won't be able to do telehealth. It's failing in the sense that our society is a t- is moving straight into it. We are a technical te- technology society, and we're only going to become more tech technology driven. And if you don't have tech savvy, you are you're sitting in a wasteland. You're sitting in a desert. You will not be able to get a job. And so this affects our GDP. You know, if we if we don't have a workforce that can can work in the digital age. What is our GDP going to look like? And even more importantly, what does our democracy look like when you have a huge segment of people that are living on the outskirts of the democracy? What is that going to look like? And so, you know, I see technology in this sense uh, and broadband being the tool of that as being able to uplift people and to provide greater economic opportunities. Because what I don't want to see happen, I've seen you know um, people talking about we're going to have to do like some European countries do and guarantee an income to the people because they're just not employable. I don't think that's good for anybody. It's not good for the unemployed and it's not good for our, for our country. This is great. Thank you for the opportunity to um, to speak on this because this has been my passion for a very long time. Yeah. And I just I do feel quite hopeful now good. that at least you know. We've got a chance of making this happen. I'm Mike Culp. I'm the director of the broadband office in Albemarle County. Our full name is Broadband Accessibility and Affordability. So we're working on multiple projects primarily now on the affordability side. So we've got a coalition of probably 13 local partners that are working with us all across the gamut. The person who spearheaded it, Jason Enofuentes, is doing an outstanding job, you know, building that digital equity initiative. It's a a great initiative that we're fortunate that we have some federal funding coming to help us continue our work. One of the things that we'll be doing in the near future is bringing in digital navigators that will help people sign up for the Affordable Connectivity Program, or ACP. So we're looking forward to that activity during the summer, and the coalition is going to help us immensely. And the conference has been great. The number of people are here, um, seeing old friends and meeting new people is, is outstanding. So we really appreciate VACO VML's work. Uh, to to bring the conference together. So you said that um, where we're going could be a 40-minute conversation. You personally, in your realm of work, where do you find yourself going next? Well, our our strategy is to, to work with all of the partners. We currently have lots of activity in Albemarle. One of the interesting things about the county is that we're the only county in the Commonwealth that has four electricity providers. And fortunately, all four of them are working on fiber projects, uh, primarily with Firefly as their partner. It's just uh, it's a natural migration. So the, the, the view of the citizen is I've got power coming into my home. I should also have connectivity that's reliable, fast, and you know, resilient. Um, so 
we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, the Vadi grant for 22 is a significant project. We're one of 13 projects, uh, 13 counties that are working in that Vadi 22 project. So there's a significant amount of angst, I think is the right word. Uh, numerous communities that have been waiting a long time for, for fiber connectivity. I've told people before this story, you know, we've, we've been with the VADI program since its inception, and our first two projects were DSL upgrades. So people moving from, from dial-up to, to DSL, those same communities are now in line for the fiber. So they're, you know, we're, we're going back again and, and refunding them with, with better technology. So it's, it's an interesting, um, interesting migration now, you know, moving everybody to the, the next phase of this, you know, so it's, it's a challenging time because there's a, a lot of work with multiple fiber providers working in the county all at the same time. So they have to work together. And I think we're seeing a lot of that. So that's the the benefit of having communications with each of the fiber companies so that you know, you know, hopefully what they're doing <laughs> and uh, they can work together to make sure they're, they're not overlapping, but at the same time, everybody's getting that fiber. Well, thank you so much. This has been very nice talking to you. Oh, great. Well, thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. My name is Kelly Page, FirstNet Regional Sales Manager with FirstNet, built by AT&T. I manage the FirstNet team for Maryland, D.C., Virginia, and our national federal team. And uh, the reason why I'm here is to talk about FirstNet, the public safety network uh, that is out there for first responders. My name is Lori Stone. I'm a senior public safety advisor for the First Responder Network Authority. We are a federal government agency that has the contract with AT&T to build and operate FirstNet. We're here today to share the story of what FirstNet is and how it supports public safety. And it was a really great presentation today, and I could tell that people were really paying attention because it affects local governments, which is my bread and butter. Um, and I heard, uh, Lori, specifically you say that you really want to hear from local governments. Um, could you talk more about that? Like, what kind of engagement are you looking for? From local governments, I want to hear the ground truth of how they are experiencing FirstNet. This network is voluntary. There's no obligation to use it. AT&T has to build it to certain specifications so that public safety and government officials use it. And it helps the government oversight to hear directly from people who are using it and how they're using it, as well as those who might not use it, and help them overcome some barriers or challenges they have. Having those direct one-on-one conversations has given me amazing feedback, use cases, stories that I can then share and amplify about how they're using FirstNet. And Kelly, um, I was—I noticed on one of the slides you were talking, uh, showed some of the different organizations that are already using it. I saw some of our members on there: City of Chesapeake, City of Richmond. Um, who does the outreach? Who who should localities get in touch with, or who who goes out and tries to convince localities that this is something that's worthwhile for them? Is that on your side or on Lori's side? It it could be a combination of both, 
but it primarily is on our side, the AT&T side. So we have designated FirstNet consultants whose sole mission is to drive FirstNet education and adoption. So we are making that outreach. We're answering those questions. Um, we're coming to the, the call of duty, if you will. When there's the emergency, we are those who we're going to be that liaison internally within AT&T, make sure we're working with those other departments. But it's going to be your first net consultant that you want to make sure you're having those conversations with. They're the ones who you want to reach out to if you have questions. But then they're also reaching out to you to share with you what the first net network is. One of my favorite slides was the one that showed all the different devices that because it's not just a network. I mean, there's there's hardware, but not expensive hardware. You were very, very quick to point out. Could you tell me a little bit more about the, the gear that's involved? Sure. So you're, you hit the nail on the head. So one of the things about the FirstNet network is that one of the requirements was that it has to be competitive for government in order to adopt it. It cannot be very expensive. So we have to make sure that we do have those 99 cent devices so that municipalities, governments for the first responder community, community can actually adopt FirstNet. So with that, there is a plethora of devices that you can choose from, over 590 from smartphones, tablets, data devices, even toughbooks, Panasonic toughbooks that go within a police cruiser or a, a fire, uh, fire department's apparatus. We support uh, that equipment as well as the data that goes into that equipment, the access for that equipment as well. So we need to make sure that we're providing a variety of equipment, a variety of options, but those that are also affordable as well. What are the barriers for organizations or local government specifically to get involved in FirstNet? Like, I guess uh, to put it another way, why might a local government not want to get involved with FirstNet? What, what might keep them from being part of it? What might keep a local government from using FirstNet yeah. is, is just the pain of change, as we refer to it. They're comfortable with what they're using for a communications network. They know where the challenges are, and they maybe don't want to put in the effort that they think it will take. We talked to them, though, about how AT&T can really take care of almost everything. They have a, a, f a mobile team that comes out to the organization, takes over a conference room, and handles all the changeover for the equipment. And we don't snap our fingers and say, okay, we're changing over everything. It's a phased deployment. It can be 10 devices at a time. It could be one battalion, um, one section, one unit. It's how that agency wants to roll it out. It can be as slow or as fast as they want it to be. Another uh, consideration is, is coverage. We don't want anybody to use this network unless they've tested and vetted it to make sure what we are saying is true. And that's why AT&T offers a demo program. They, they give you the devices. They say go out and test it. And tell us, tell the first and authority as well, how it's working. And if we don't give you what you need and it's even better than what you have already, we don't want you to use it. So there's no sales tricks or gimmicks or any games playing. It's test it and try it. And if it works, we, we'd love to, to have a conversation about, about moving over. And if it doesn't work, tell us why and give us a chance to fix it. And then stay engaged with us and make sure that we are fixing it for you so that one day, ultimately, you can be a FirstNet user. And one of you, I can't remember which one of you made the point that I thought was really interesting during the presentation, that because of the low cost of the hardware and because of the way the system works, you're not limited to just having, you know, your first responders on the network. You can have the crossing guard for the school, I think was the example, you know, all the way, the, the dog catcher, if you want them to have it. Um, 
Is there a danger to having too many people being part of the same emergency response network? Or is how do you make it so that the dog catcher isn't interrupting an important you know, emergency to, to give their two cents? That's actually a great question. We partner with public safety. We want you to tell us who is a part of your critical team, who's your all hands on deck. So if you do tell us it is that dog catcher, then we get them on FirstNet. But it's really public safety informing us this is who we partner with. This is who we communicate with. We need to make sure that from a mutual aid perspective, we can communicate with those individuals. So if it is the dog catcher or if it's a, um, a patrol officer that you know is, is going through the Parks and Recreation Department, one example would be City of Annapolis, Maryland. For them, it truly is an all-hands-on-deck. It is a citywide adoption from their Department of Public Works to fire to the police department to the mayor's office, et cetera, because when there's that, that, there is that emergency, everyone is there responding. That's fantastic. And I guess I should say, like, no offense to dog catchers or any stray dogs that are running around out there listening to this podcast. I didn't mean to single you out. Rob, can I add something about the capacity of the network? First Net Authority has the license to 20 megahertz of spectrum, band 14. We chose AT&T for a significant reason in that they offered all of their other spectrum that they have in their portfolio to be a part of the FirstNet network. And so if that band 14 spectrum that first responders use ever got overcrowded with all the dog catchers in the world coming <laughs> to that one area then other public safety users would go to the other spectrum bands. Seamlessly, they don't need to do anything or think anything. The network is that flexible and intelligent. So the capacity is almost as endless as as the network is. For anybody that wants to learn more about this, I did get a commitment from both Kelly and Laurie that they or somebody um, that they appoint will be at the VML annual conference this October in Norfolk from October 8th through 10th, if I can put a little plug in there. And um, we're going to do more um, about FirstNet to get the word out to, to our localities. So thank you both very much for your time today. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you. We appreciate it. I'm sad to say that this episode of the VML Voice has drawn to a close. But we were only halfway through our discussions with the Broadband Together folks. So please give a listen to part two of this episode just as soon as you can. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors, Virginia Housing, Dominion Energy, and GovDeals. Thanks. And now, here is this episode's VML Voice of Reason. The next civil rights movement will not be fought on the streets. It will be fought over those who have access to broadband and those who do not.